I think we're all adults enough to understand that um, over the course of uh, you know a, a four-course Daniel Blue meal, you probably uh, you probably come around to talking about the elephant in the room, and the only question is, you know, did they order the Royal Ocetra or the Golden Imperial Ocetra? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, February 23rd. Today, I'm joined by Dylan Byers to talk about billionaire Bill Ackman's crusade against Business Insider for their claim that Ackman's wife committed plagiarism in her academic work. As Dylan reports, Business Insider's owner, Axel Springer CEO, Matthias Doffner, wants this fight and the threat of a lawsuit to go away. And it now looks like he and Ackman might be figuring out an off-ramp. And later, Tina Wynn joins Ben for an inside look at the latest news coming out of Washington, D.C., a.k.a. the District of Disaster. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers to talk about one of the most intriguing stories in media, which is Bill Ackman's campaign against Business Insider. Bill Ackman, of course, is a hedge fund billionaire who has become an anti-woke crusader, specifically on Twitter, where he posts maybe the longest tweets of any tweets in history. <laughs> um, Dylan, Dylan, the backstory here that, that is intriguing, of course, is that after Bill Ackman led the charge against a bunch of you know, Ivy League university presidents for being too tolerant of anti-Semitism on their campuses, Business Insider, you know, which has a sort of restive activist newsroom, like to go after targets big and small, they published a story saying that Bill Ackman's wife, Neri Oxman, who's an MIT academic, was guilty of plagiarism for some academic work she had done. Uh, of course, they're pointing the finger back at Bill Ackman, who used plagiarism charges to go after former Harvard president Claudine Gay. Now, what was interesting here, too, is that after Ackman accused Business Insider of shoddy journalism and anti-Semitism, uh, his wife is Jewish, uh, he's also threatening a lawsuit. Then the owner of Business Insider, Axel Springer, and their uh, chief, Matthias Doffner, said he would conduct a review of Business Insider's practices, which pissed off a lot of journalists who saw it as sort of CEO meddling in the newsroom. All of this leads up to a very curious article that popped in the New York Post earlier this week that said, hedge fund billionaire Bill Ackman dines in New York with Axel Springer, CEO, after threat of Business Insider suit and it attributes it to sources and it says we don't know what they were talking about uh okay cool <laughs> sure i assume we know what they were talking about <laughs> uh that's a long wind up dylan but what were they talking about if you know and what's the status of bill ackman's threat against business insider yeah look I, the the official line here um i think from both camps is uh you know that a prerequisite for the meeting was that there would be no discussion of the <laughs> threatened lawsuit against Business Insider. I, th I think we're all adults sure. enough to understand <laughs> that um, 
over the course of uh, you know a, a four course Daniel Blue meal, you probably uh, you probably come around to talking about the elephant in the room. And the only question is, you know, did they order the Royal Ocetra or the Golden Imperial Ocetra? I, I <laughs> look. Let's let's back up for one second. This whole story has been. Uh, sort of an unmitigated disaster for everyone and I uh, both both sides and I think if both sides could do it over again they would have done it differently I think that um, look accusations of anti-semitism strike very uh, very close to home for Matthias Dopfner who um, has made fighting against anti-semitism and, and standing up on, on behalf of Israel you know, basically part of like the contractual agreement of working for his German publications. And so when when Bill Ackman leveled this accusation, they took it seriously and they made a lot of textbook mistakes from a PR perspective. They they announced that they were going to do this review, which gave the impression of meddling, which is probably not really what was happening. And they sort of turned it into a story and, and sort of, a, you know, basically brought the question about business insiders journalism out into the open, uh, surely not what they would like to do, nor would they like to be in a, in a PR fight with Bill Ackman. Did Bill Ackman screw up here? I would say yes. Like this, you know, for a moment, it seemed like Bill Ackman was sort of celebrated in some corners, certainly not all, for standing up after October 7th for trying to combat anti-Semitism on college campuses. And very quickly, that became about something else, right? It became about defending his wife, about going after Business Insider, certainly exacerbating the story around around his wife uh, by bringing so much attention to it, and then basically looking like he was sort of a, an enemy of the free press. So no winners in, in this scenario. My understanding, just as what my spidey sense tells me, um, having talked to some few folks around the sort of periphery of this, uh, with some knowledge of, of what happened at the dinner, is that no one wants to endure this <laughs> pain and suffering for all that much longer. And so I think in some way, shape, or form, these two sides are going to find an off-ramp. Now, a couple caveats. First, I should note that you and I are, are actually talking on a Wednesday. This podcast is coming out on a Friday, and by that time... We may very well have an idea of what that off-ramp looks like. The second, the caveat is just knowing Bill Ackman, um, there is no way this off-ramp ha happens if he doesn't find a way to do it while claiming some semblance of a win. And so in order to do so, I anticipate that without going to court, he will still try to extract some sort of some movement from Business Insider to basically not necessarily retract the article, but to basically make clear that the the like 72 point font headline about Nary Oxman being guilty of plagiarism contains a little more nuance to acknowledge that maybe this wasn't like a malicious attempt to steal other people's ideas so much as sort of an accident of which I think now that we've all been talking about plagiarism for so long, I think we can all agree happens from time to time in the world of academia. And I think that if he can feel as though he's gotten something on that front and uh, Business Insider and, and Matias simultaneously feel like they can stand by their journalism and their journalists, then I think everyone is sort of keen to wipe their hands of this sooner rather than later and avoid the years-long 
uh, lawsuit, which, frankly, I don't think Bill Ackman has the case here, and I certainly don't think Business Insider wants to endure the case. And what, just to remind people, what would be the kernel here of a lawsuit against Business Insider? (laughs) We were chatting the other night in New York at Bill Cohan's event with David Solomon, uh, in which I complimented David Solomon's passion for DJing. He appreciated that, I think. Uh, We were talking about the actual malice standard, which I've learned a lot from Eric Gardner about, and that is in defamation law, uh, basically a plaintiff or a public figure in this case has to have proof that uh, a news organization or a media organization recklessly and knowingly pursued a, a claim against a public figure while also knowing it was false. Now, I don't know if Ackman was sort of claiming that he would sue for defamation here, but the standard, the burden of proof is really, really high in defamation cases. What would this lawsuit theoretically be, even though it seems like it's probably not going to happen considering what you're saying that they're talking about an off-ramp? Yeah, look, I, I don't know. I'm not a legal expert either, but it, it's very hard. Like you said, the the bar is high. I think that is a good thing. And, um, I, you know, unless you have, you know, an email from one editor to a journalist saying like, you know, uh, let's <laughs> let's defame Bill Ackman's wife by <laughs> falsely accusing her of plagiarism. I don't think you have much of a case. I think one of the beauties of the, the you know, the the way things work in this country is you are you are allowed to make mistakes. And I think that is what Ackman really wants. I think he wants Business Insider to acknowledge that the reporting on his wife might have been a pinch too breathless. And uh, look, no, no one has brought questions about Neri Oxman's alleged plagiarism to the public's attention so much as Ackman himself. Um and so I, I, a little bit of this is maybe trying to undo that, but there isn't really in my mind a case here. I mean, I guess you could say that plagiarism is, you know, definitionally an accusation of malicious theft of other people's ideas and therefore that there needs to be a stipulation that this was a mistake and therefore it doesn't. I, I don't know. I don't really you know, part of the problem with plagiarism is like, you know, most people kind of distinguish it by, you know, it when you see it, you know, which is not a clear legal definition. And so I think part of the problem here is this isn't a sort of case that anyone that any judge or jury is really going to take all that seriously. But again, like, you know, (laughs) it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a fight that, that Agman could probably win, I don't think. And it's not really a fight that, um, Matthias and and Axel and Business Insider want to spend much more time engaging with, um, hence the detente, hence the off-ramp, uh, if they can, if, if they can find it and if both sides can, can come out looking like they didn't give too much. Dylan, thank you for, uh, piercing the veil of mystery around this dinner, which was clearly just about, uh, whether they should get, uh, the fish or the steak and what bottle of wine. Uh, they <laughs> definitely, definitely didn't talk about Business Insider. <laughs> sure, New York Post. Um, everyone go check out Dylan's reporting on this uh, up on Puck's website and make sure you subscribe to Dylan's private email in the room. Dylan, thanks so much for your insights, buddy. Thank you, Peter. Good to see you this week. When we come back, Tina Wynn is here with the news out of Washington.
Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with the peerless Tina Wynn. Tina, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Oh, I love being called peerless. I love that. <laughs> I love that we've turned this into our thing. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, and I wanted to have you on today to help me make sense of the latest fallout in the Biden impeachment inquiry. And um, for people who haven't been following this, the, the gist of it is that some large portion of the developing House Republican case against the president hung on this one mysterious source, an FBI informant who claimed that uh, executives at Burisma had discussed paying a $5 million bribe to both Biden and Hunter in 2015 or 2016. This is around the time that Biden, as vice president, was pushing for the ouster of the Ukrainian government prosecutor who was allegedly investigating Burisma. In fact, uh, the argument of the Biden administration is that um, the vice president was pushing the Ukrainian government to oust him because he was corrupt himself and he was too soft on corruption. But the Republican narrative has been that Biden was pushing to get rid of this guy because he was looking into Burisma where his son was working. And if there was some kind of quid pro quo here, that would have been the smoking gun. As it turns out, at least according to the FBI and the Justice Department, this informant, this guy named Alexander Smirnov, had ties to Russia and Russian intelligence made all this stuff up, and they've now charged him with lying to the FBI and creating false records. What are your House Republican sources making of all this? Because it seems like they're left in sort of an awkward position since so much of their supposed impeachment case was theoretically hinging on this guy. Oh, my goodness. It's been a little, um, they've been sort of in this weird state of denial at the moment. Because, like, here's the thing about the right-wing echo chamber, media-wise. There is a narrative that always gets dropped into their media diet. It keeps getting hyped up. It keeps getting hyped up. The more that people outside Republican world start saying, no, this is absolutely false, the more internally it feels like oh no they're attacking us we have to double down on this so for one avenue of the house republicans biden impeachment inquiry to suddenly not just go belly up but be revealed as a russian asset is just like 
you don't really want to acknowledge that you're ever wrong. And that's sort of where the Republicans are going to head into this. Like, either they're going to forget that they ever wanted to go down this path to begin with, or they're going to double down and attack the Justice Department. Now, if you were a smart Republican prior to Trump, you would just try to memory hole the entire incident altogether. But now that Trump has introduced the idea of, oh, we should distrust the FBI because of XYZ crimes that they did to the MAGA um, ethos, especially going after Trump back during his uh, term, it could be very easy for them to at least rhetorically pin this on another instance of, you know, the FBI trying to protect the Bidens. Yeah, well, I saw some Republicans already going out with that line. Andy Biggs, some some reporters caught up to him and asked him, hey, you know, does this invalidate your case? And he said, oh, the same FBI that originally denied they had this information, that denied the source even existed, who then didn't want to share the information with Congress. I mean, maybe that's because the FBI itself had a reasonable doubt that the information was accurate. Uh, we don't know. But obviously, yes, to your point, Republicans already distrust the FBI, as do Republican voters. And I think, yes, we'll, we'll see that playing out here. I mean, Big said they still have, quote, lots of evidence, but he did not say what it is. So th- we're still sort of waiting to hear from lawmakers what other avenues they are going to pursue here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was the point of this intor- of the uh, impeachment inquiry to begin with. Back around the end of the last year, McCarthy and eventually Johnson empowered three committees to dig into whatever um, potential avenues of possible crimes that the Bidens could or could not have committed. And so the initial idea was that these three branches would use their subpoena powers to dig through a massive pile of somewhat sketchy, weird, eyebrow-raising evidence to find a smoking gun but they haven't turned up anything of substance so far other than like, oh, look at this weird check, these one or two weird checks, and like these one or two guys that we found who have alleged impropriety, but we can't back it up. And that's sort of the brilliant thing about this tactic to hold Biden accountable, which is like, okay, maybe we're not going to find one smoking gun the way that Nancy Pelosi did when she led the Trump impeachment, but we are going to build a case that the Bidens were generally corrupt, and over time, hopefully, we'll just make everyone think, ooh, man, Biden's really corrupt. That's kind of weird. Huh, should he be president again? I think not. Well, I think you're, you're getting at something really important, which is what is the point of this impeachment inquiry? Is it to muddy the waters? Is it to, you know, kick dirt on Joe Biden's name and make him look like a a bad guy or part of a sort of unseemly corrupt family? I mean, we know that Hunter Biden had this well-paying job on the board of Burisma, Ukrainian energy company, and that he probably didn't really do anything at that job or have any reason to have it, except he was the president's son. And that's kind of seedy and a little bit gross. The question is whether Biden, the president or, or vice president at the time, benefited in any way. And that's where we're all still waiting to see the evidence. Um, I saw reporters also caught up to Jim Jordan yesterday after this case was falling apart. And he said the news about Smirnoff doesn't change the, quote, four fundamental facts of the case, uh, which is that Hunter was put on the board of Burisma, he was paid a bunch of money, that Joe Biden conditioned the release of aid to Ukraine on firing the prosecutors, and, quote, all four of these things are facts. 
it's funny for a couple of reasons. One, that there's only three things, not four things, even though he keeps saying they have these four fundamental facts. And of course, one of those at least is entirely unproven. We don't have any evidence that the prosecutor was actively investigating Burisma. Um, and certainly we don't have any evidence that Biden benefited financially in some way. But Tina, I guess we'll have to wait to see what other information comes out. We know that James Biden, the president's brother, uh, younger brother, testified Wednesday. I don't think anything truly of value came out of that. And then we'll have an interview with Hunter Biden um, sometime next week. Are your sources optimistic at all that um, either of those things might sort of turn the corner for them? At the moment, not really, but it, re- it all depends on what it comes out of these questioning periods. Now, ultimately, the point is to pull something out of these interrogations and interviews that could somehow be used to prove that Joe Biden committed a high crime and slash or misdemeanor that would be worthy of using impeachment on him. Now, we've already seen with the uh, Mayorkas impeachment last week, the Homeland Security Secretary, that the House Republicans are okay sort of skipping over the step of actually finding, like, doing a fact-finding mission just in order to land it in the Senate where he's not going to be uh, impeached because... Sure, with, with Mayorkas, they basically just said, this guy's bad at his job, and that's reason enough to impeach him. Yeah, um, at least with that one, my sources were all telling me, like, look, we actually do think he's been doing a horrible job on the border, but we can't do anything else. So this is essentially a banshee scream for us with Hunter and Joe and Ukraine. It's a little bit more tricky because there's not that much you can use to leverage the American people's anger against the Bidens using something that's ever so mildly sus. But everyone sort of expects from i mean let's let's just be blunt about it hunter biden is a nepo baby <laughs> no i don't think anyone's denying that but um you know to, to the point you just made about mayorkas i mean that was an impeachment vote that failed the first time and just barely passed the second time which is just another reminder that house republicans just have a extremely tight margin um they, they're barely holding on to a majority and i do wonder after all that's happened with the biden impeachment case over the last few weeks whether they'll have the votes at all i mean it really only takes you know one or two or three republicans to vote against it or to um to not vote at all and this whole thing comes falling down um, so we'll have to wait and see if whether they push forward with this, whether they're able to surface any new damning information, or uh, maybe, Tina, we'll see some other kind of off-ramp here that allows Republicans to um, to save face. Ooh, I don't know. When you're a Republican, you kind of have to be ride or die with certain things or ride and, you know, like shelve in the back corner and try to forget that it ever happened. <laughs> uh, Tina, we'll see what happens next week and we'll have you back on. Thanks as always. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.